Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zielinski. If you remember, we started uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, before we got to this little section, he said that he has come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That in the bringing of his kingdom, the making it, making it available and being able to live life in the kingdom doesn't set us outside of the law and the prophets because he didn't say, well, scrap that. I'm going to do something different. When we live in the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're actually fulfilling the law and the prophets in our life. And we have to understand that. But Jesus also said that in our fulfilling of the law and the prophets, we have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's a challenge. If you think about it in terms of, well, just fulfilling the law, because they were really good at putting a check in every box and saying, yep, I did that. I did that. I did that. I did that. And uh, some of them, you know, they did it pretty flawlessly. But Jesus said there was still something wrong with their hearts. So if you would stand, please, as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and see what Jesus has to say about this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You may be seated. Now, as you can tell, divorce and adultery, they, they really do go together. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, it, the, the connection there is very, very apparent. But if you look at the way Jesus goes through, he has six different examples, six things that he speaks of as concrete examples of daily life, how we need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees how we need to fulfill the law in a way that is far beyond what they were doing. And remember, they were keeping it in the sense of, well, if it says don't commit adultery, I didn't commit adultery. They could put that check in the box, but we have to fulfill that in a way that is beyond theirs. So he said, you know, in verse 21, you have heard that it was said, and talked about murder. Then 27, you have heard that it was said, and he talks about adultery. And if you look at verse 33 and 38 and 43, they all begin with, you have heard that it was said. But if you look at the one with divorce in verse 31, he says, it was also said. He breaks from the pattern because he's, he's doing something that's a little bit of a, a follow-up from lust, but it's not really a separate issue. These two are tied together. And when we see clues like that, that Jesus has a pattern, but he breaks the pattern, it clues us in that we need to take those things together. We need to think about them in tandem. But Jesus elaborates 
much more in depth on the divorce issue later in Matthew's gospel. It's a much deeper thing. And so he treats it briefly here. We're going to treat it briefly here. We're going to mention it, but we're focusing on lust like Jesus does. You know, we want to do what scripture leads. And so we'll deal with divorce much later. If you have questions, you know, get with me. We can still talk through some of those things, um, but we're going to focus on the lust issue. And I want to go right. We're going to go there right at the beginning. Lust is not a male problem. It's a human problem. Females too. We tend to think in our culture, oh, men are the, you know, if you think about pornography, who has a problem with pornography? Men do. Not true. I mean, that is true. But there's more truth that goes with it. Statistically, women are rapidly gaining ground on men in terms of use of pornography. The, the absurdly young age that children are exposed to pornography for women is maybe a year. They're maybe like a year older. You know, for men, I think their first exposure to pornography is around six or seven. For girls, it's like seven or eight. So parents, if you're waiting till your kids hit puberty, you've missed it by about four or five years. You need to be having these conversations with your kids because they're having them in school. They're seeing it on TV. They're seeing it in the movies. Who do you want to be the first one to engage your children with a biblical view or or a view of sexuality? You. It's for you. And we can't afford to be late and to miss out on that. But it's not just pornography. Because he doesn't just say looking at things lustfully. It's it's about the heart. He goes beyond that. And that's his whole point is to push beyond that. It's about the lust itself. And that doesn't just have to come from what we would consider overt, you know, pornography. There are romance novels. And this, there's not a lot of men reading romance novels, right? That's, there may be some, but on the female side of it, there's romance novels. There's not quite as much anymore, but soap operas. What is that? Nothing godly going on in those things. What about all the Netflix and Prime Video and other streaming services that have these sleazy, trashy shows that are all just stirring up your fantasies sexually? It's not good. It's not good. It's, it's evil working in your heart. And let's be real. It's not a young people problem either. There's a reason they make Viagra. Older people still have urges, okay? We don't, we don't outgrow temptations, right? It, it doesn't work that way. It's not that way at all. And, and for far too long, the church has been afraid to discuss it. Why are we afraid to talk about it? Whose idea was sex? It was God's idea. He made Adam and Eve naked in the garden and blessed them by saying, go multiply. His idea It's a good thing. Just because the enemy has perverted it and ruined it doesn't mean we need to get embarrassed and ashamed to talk about it from a biblical perspective. Our abstinence of of speaking to the subject, our refusal to be a voice as godly people has damaged the church substantially. We can't afford to sit on the sidelines. And it makes sense when you think about how Jesus is approaching it. Jesus was really smart. When we think about him as God, we think of, his, of him as omniscient. But think about Jesus as a speaker, as an orator, as one that is giving a discourse, as explaining things. 
He was the best there ever was. He was brilliant. The way he presented material, the way he went about the content, it was phenomenal. When he's describing the rightness of a kingdom heart, what are the first two things he deals with? Anger and lust. Could you imagine if we just eliminated anger issues and sexual issues? What would the world look like? Why did God flood the world? Because there was violence everywhere and sexual issues were rampant. What are the two biggest things we see in our world? The violence and the sexual problems. Jesus knew what was in the heart of people and he knew what needed to be dealt with first. So let's get, begin kind of the same way we took the last one. We're going to wrap our minds around what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying here. Is he setting aside the command to not commit adultery? Is he abolishing that? No. He's not saying you can ignore that and do this now. Is he just raising the bar and saying, yeah, you thought not committing adultery was tough. Try never looking at anybody with lustful intent. Now you have an even harder burden to bear and an even more stringent thing to force on us. Is that what Jesus is doing? No. No, the heart of what Jesus is doing is clarifying the intent of the command to not commit adultery. It was never about just making sure we stop short of adultery. I mean, imagine if that was it. It has to go far beyond the, I guess, the mere formal obedience of the Pharisees where they would put the check in the box, say, well, yeah, I know, but I, but I didn't commit adultery, so I'm good. I can look, I can fantasize, I can indulge, I can do whatever, but I didn't commit adultery. So we're good, right? No, not at all. It's not do what they do, but better than them. Like they were good at checking the box here, but now we have to check the box up here. No, checking the box righteousness is not it. Jesus said, if you don't get past that, you'll never enter the kingdom. And that was an emphatic negative, never going to happen. We have to get beyond the check in the box mentality. It's about the heart. And then he goes into this discussion of amputation, right? And we're, we're real quick to say, well, he's not really meaning that, right? Are you sure? I mean, Jesus likes to make bold statements. And they're not statements we can dismiss. They're statements we have to understand. What is he getting after here? One, there's a severity issue. You've got to be willing to do what it takes to get these things right in our heart in terms of kingdom rightness. I mean, if your eye is continually a problem with what you're looking at, you rip that thing out, you'll never look at anything again. That's pretty severe. But does that fix the issue? See, and there's a certain way that Jesus is pushing this to a point of absurdity, right? That, that, that's a logical, that's a way of proving a logical fallacy is you reduce it to an absurdity. And you say, okay, if you want to think of this just in terms of the pharisaical route, just make sure I never do the action again. If I want to make sure I never look lustfully at somebody again, just rip my eyes out. And then I can never do it again. So will that eliminate the action, the sinful action? But I mean, it'll eliminate this. You, you won't be able to look at anybody ever again if you don't have eyes. 
But will it eliminate the lust in your heart? No. No, it won't at all. You can have no eyes and never look at anybody lustfully again and still be fantasizing about sexually inappropriate things all day long with no eyes. You can cut your hands off and still fantasize about something you want to touch. It doesn't do the trick. And so Jesus is pointing to severity, but he's also pointing to the absurdity of trying to just follow another rigid law. It's not about that. The goal was never to stop short of cheating. You cannot cheat and still wrong somebody sexually, whether your spouse or somebody else. You could avoid looking lustfully and still be wrong towards somebody sexually. You know that? So as we're looking at this, he says, you've heard not to commit adultery, but I say don't look lustfully. But you know, he's not giving us another command that, oh, now I have to not look with the intent to lust. He's telling us we need to get our hearts right in how we treat people in in all areas of sexual things. It's not just avoiding a look. It's not just avoiding adultery. And, And the focus, if you notice, is with lustful intent. Like, you, you see it and you just hang out there. You're going to see things and you're going to have thoughts come into your mind. If you look at somebody of the opposite gender or, or the same gender and a, and a sexual thought comes to mind, you have not sinned in that moment. That is a temptation to sin. Temptation itself is never sinful. But if you latch onto that thought and you start indulging it, you realize you like that thought. And you want to start meditating on that thought. You want to push that thought further and further. That's when it's sinful. Or if you know somebody's coming or you you know you're going to see them and you're intent on, oh, I'm going to look and I'm going to think about what could happen. That's lustful intent. And that's where the sinfulness is, is really manifesting itself. And it's manifesting itself in the heart. Your heart is the center of who and what you are. That's if you could boil yourself down to your most essential self, it's your heart. The way scripture speaks of the heart, that's you. And that's why Jesus says that if you've looked at somebody with lustful intent, you're you're committed in your heart. You are an adulterer. The only thing you're lacking is opportunity. The person who would engage to that point in their mind And in their heart, if the circumstances were right, they would do it. So as far as God's concerned, they are an adulterer. As far as anybody's concerned, they are. Now, that doesn't mean if I've thought it, I might as well do it because I'm already an adulterer. Jesus is not saying that. So don't go there. But it's saying we just need to deal with our heart. The goal with divorce is not to figure out what makes divorce permissible. Because, you know, that's why our culture runs to the scriptures. Well, can I, is there any way I can take this and justify my divorce? That's how we use scripture. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying, in reality, he's saying divorce is far more substantial than you think it is. Do you know why he said marrying a divorced person is forcing, or divorcing somebody is forcing them to commit adultery? What does adultery mean? It's having sex with somebody that's married, not to you. 
right? Well, the reason is because he says, unless there's a true covenant-breaking violation of that marriage, it's still a marriage in his eyes. I don't care what the courthouse says. I don't care what legal documents say. God, marriage is a covenant made before God. And, and people are made one by God. And Jesus said that. He said, what God put together, let man not separate. And so if, if there hasn't been a true violation of the covenant, they might be legally divorced, but God considers that union still intact. And so when they remarry, they're actually engaging in adulterous relationship because they're still technically with that other person. That's why it's such a big deal. And Jesus also understands that in their culture, if, if a guy just wrote a woman off and, and left her go for whatever reason, she, she had a stigma sexually that she would never be touched. Nobody would want to remarry her. She might as well have been an adulteress. For women, it was only for women. Men could do whatever they wanted. And that's true. Uh, our culture is the same way. We think we've made strides in equality. We haven't. Think about in high school. If a guy is having sex with a whole bunch of girls, he's the man, right? He's the one. Everybody's high-fiving him. He scored another one. A girl that's sleeping with all the guys, how is she viewed? Not good. She's trashy, all sorts of negative stuff that goes with it. Why? Because we, we view it differently. Does Jesus view it differently? No. No, Jesus even made... Oh, I just lost it. There we back. He says that whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Not just is she committing adultery, but the guy is too. Jesus is leveling the playing field. There's no difference. Sin is sin. Doesn't matter who it is. Sinfulness is sinfulness. And the reality is the kingdom is calling us towards purity in our hearts in all sexual issues towards other people. Every relationship, complete purity in thoughts, in desires, in motives, in our words, and not least in our actions. They're still important, but it's what drives them that is where we have to start. So Jesus is here saying, be pure sexually as far as that can go. Now, what do we do with that? How do we take this? If you remember last week, we said the first thing after you kind of wrap your mind around what Jesus is getting after, you have to strengthen your resolve to be that kind of person, to become the kind of person who is sexually pure and faithful to everyone in their life. Completely devoted to your spouse, nothing going on outside of anything sexually other than you and your spouse. If you're not married, there should be no entertaining of sexual thoughts and fantasies and desires or anything of that nature. Because as far as God is concerned, the only appropriate sexual activity is between a man and a wife, one man, one woman, who are married in the sight of God. And that doesn't just mean we love each other and we had sex, so we call ourselves married. That doesn't suffice. We live in a culture. Jesus attended weddings. He validated wedding ceremonies. You see them all throughout the people of God. It's appropriate to do it legally, not just say, well, this is in God's eyes. But do you want that? This is where we have to have a real heart check. Do you really want to be that kind of person? 
Do you really want to be sexually pure as far as God is concerned in your thoughts, in your mind, in your heart? Do you really want that? Are you willing to change? Do you really want to be pure sexually in every way? Or do you like indulging those things? We have to deal with that. Because so often we really don't want to be different. We, we kind of like how we are. We like what we do. I've seen cases where people, they, they love to even share their testimony of what they struggle with because their struggle has become a part of who they are. And they like that. They don't want to lose the this is my struggle story. And so they're, they're really undermining their own efforts towards freedom because they really don't want to be free of it. So are you willing to become different? Are you willing to do something different with your free time? Are you willing to make the changes that are necessary to change in your life? Are you willing to swallow your pride and let somebody else into your life to help? Are you willing to lose the way your friends perceive you? Because, you know, when, when you're at work and, and you make a dirty joke and everybody laughs, are you willing to not be that guy anymore? Are you willing to lose out some of the camaraderie of the world because you don't entertain it? Are we willing? We have to be willing to go there. You also have to believe that you can. You got to believe that this is possible. And for some, maybe you've struggled with this for, for 20, 30, 50 years, 60 years. And you think, well, I'm, you know, you know I, this has been the case for so long. Uh, I'm, I'm on the back nine of my life anyway. What's the point? You can change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Are you saying the power of the Holy Spirit isn't sufficient for that? Did Jesus, is his death and resurrection so short-armed that it can't help you? There's no such thing as a lost cause or a hopeless person in any area of our life. There is no area that God's power cannot touch and change, and you have to believe that's the case. If you don't think that's true, you're never going to walk in it. So you have to want it. You have to believe it. But remember, merely wanting isn't enough. You have to purpose to do it. You've got to make some determination in your life. Determine that you're going to think purely and have pure eyes. No matter what, I don't care what comes in front of my face. I'm not going to indulge it. I'm not going to look on it. I'm not going to gaze on it. I'm not going to stare at it. I'm determined that I'm going to move on from that. Determine you're going to do whatever it takes. Remember the, the severity of the amputee analogy. If you are really willing to do the most drastic thing necessary to walk in freedom, you're going to see freedom. That's what Jesus has called us to. He said, you've got to die in order to experience life with him. Are we really willing to put things to death that need to die in us to be that? If you're married, determine that your marriage is and will be a covenant reflection of Christ and the church, period. It's going to look like that. And I don't care what it takes to get to that point. It's going to. Jesus said, he inspired his word. And, and through Paul in Ephesians, he says that marriage is reflective of Christ and the church. Let's let what the reality is be true and be seen 
in our marriages. So you understand what Jesus is saying. You've determined to want it. You've determined to grow in it, to become that kind of person. How do we get there? What's the roadmap look like? You've got to develop your heart. Remember, this isn't just about changing your actions because you can not commit adultery, but that doesn't mean you've fulfilled the law in any way or displayed kingdom rightness. You could avoid looking. You can scrap pornography or even, you know, put your filters on Netflix or whatever you want. I'm not going to have anything even close, but that doesn't necessarily mean your heart's changed. We've got to get all the way to the heart to where we, at some point, we don't have to stop ourselves from looking. We just, there's never a desire to, to go there. We can become those kinds of people. So you've got to train yourself for godliness. That's biblical language. Paul told Timothy to train yourself for godliness. Training is important. Again, you can think of training in whatever terms you'd like, but when you hear the word train, when you train for something, whether it's training for work, training for an event, training for sports, training for music, you understand that there's intentionality, there's repetition, there's longevity, there are corrections that need to be made because if you're training to do something wrongly, you're going to end up doing it wrong. So you've got to be adjusting as you go. Think about training. Are you training your heart to be right in terms of the kingdom in sexual issues? That's where we've got to be. And know that you're not doing it on your own. See, as soon as we start talking about what you have to do and how you need to train your heart and you need to train for godliness, we're tending to think, well, does that mean I'm doing this now? Well, yes, but you're not doing this to the exclusion of God's work in your life because your partnership with God is an active partnership, not a passive one where I just sit around and wait till Jesus sets me free. You're never gonna say, well, I'm still bound with pornography because Jesus hasn't set me free yet. So what, it's God's fault now? No, no. We can never blame God because of the sin we still wrestle with as if it's his fault because he didn't help us out of it yet. He has infinitely put the ball in our court. He's made everything available to us, all of the resources of the kingdom. I want to draw your attention again to Ephesians chapter one, where Paul is praying that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Notice he doesn't pray that his immeasurably great power would be at work toward us. He prays that we would know it, that we would understand it. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you to strengthen you, to help you with your thoughts, to help you with your desires, to help you with your actions, your words, with everything related to this. His great power is at work in you. And look at how Paul described his own effort. He said, for this, I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So who's toiling? Paul's toiling. Who's struggling? Paul is struggling. What's he struggling with? All of Christ's energy that Christ is powerfully working in him. You see how that goes? So when you think about training and you think about developing a game plan and you think about engaging in spiritual disciplines, you're not just doing this in your own strength. You're doing it in partnership with the power that God has provided to you through the Holy Spirit. But don't mistake that for meaning you don't have to exert effort. God's grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Wrong E word. 
We have to exert great effort. Look at Paul. I toil, struggling with all of his energy, though. Not our own. It's there. The resources of the kingdom are there. So take advantage of them. Develop a game plan. Okay? I talked to somebody the other day that's very entrepreneurial. And I said, look, you know, just develop a business model for your spiritual growth. You know how to make a business plan. Just make a business plan where your business is spiritual development. Be intentional. Work this thing out. Think through it intentionally and think through it very practically. And then follow your plan. Don't don't make a note on your phone and then never open that app again. Don't write it out on an index card or a notebook and then just bury it under the pile. Okay, we... We're bad about that. We make plans and then we don't follow them. You've got to follow the plan. So what are some things you can do? Number one, pray about it. And this is not a superficial churchy answer that we just know, well, just pray about it. No, I'm serious. Pray about it. Every day, pray about it. Pray specifically. I mean, let it be a part of your prayer life that you regularly say, God, please help me to have a pure heart and a pure mind in all sexual matters. Help me to never lust after another person. Help me to never engage those fantasies or desires. And please take those desires that are ungodly from me. Pray that way. And, and pray that God would help you walk those things out. See, one of the, one of the damaging things we do is we tell young people or, or non-married people, you, you shouldn't be having those desires. Do you know what kind of world we end up with when we tell young men that they shouldn't be desiring a sexual attraction or shouldn't have sexual attraction to young women? We end up with the world we've got where now all they think about is men because we've beat their drive out of them. And that's a healthy drive. Men should be sexually attracted to women. Women should be sexually attracted to men. God made us that way. God gave us appetites for food. Does that mean we just eat whatever we want whenever we want? No, that doesn't end well. Just because we have a sexual drive doesn't mean we need to fulfill it whenever, however, whatever. There are Guidelines. There are regulations that, that we need to follow, ways we need to carry out our sexuality. And that's between one man and one woman in marriage. Anything outside of that leads to heartache and disaster. You can deny that all you want, but that's where it ends. Period. I mean, even just statistically, and, and this is just confirming what we already know, statistically speaking, couples who do not live together before they get married, have a greater level of satisfaction in their marriage. Isn't that amazing? The world with this whole, you know, you test drive a car, why not test drive a spouse? Let's just live together for a while and see if this is going to work. It doesn't work better that way. Amazingly, when you follow God's way of doing things, it works out better. Did you know, statistically speaking, uh, another thing they, they say, well, don't you want to get all the, the practice you can, you know, so you can have a good, healthy sex life? Statistically speaking, the fewer number of partners you've had, the higher your level of satisfaction in your sexual relationships with your spouse. People who have only had sex with their spouse have the highest reported level of enjoyment of their sex life. 
top of the list. Amazing. So if you want the best sex life possible, wait for your spouse and only have sex with them. Read that somewhere. (laughs) It's a good idea. But pray about it. I mean, pray that God would let these things be the case for you. Pray that God would help you view everybody from his eyes as made in his image. That will change things. Good luck looking at pornography when you're thinking those people are the image of God. Paul says to treat older women like mothers and younger women like sisters. You wouldn't look at your sister like that. You wouldn't look at your brother like that. You would never want somebody looking at your son or daughter like that. But men, every woman you're looking at is some man's daughter. And you might think, well, that doesn't really bother anybody, right? I mean, it's just, it's a picture. I'm just looking at it. Let me tell you something. Every penny that's spent, every image that is liked, every link that is clicked on, every website that is opened drives the demand and says, people want this. And it keeps the ball rolling. And that's just what it does to other people. And I'm telling you, you, you think they're there because they want to be. The, the sex slavery is, is everywhere. It's everywhere. You can, you can find testimonies of people that have come out of it, and, and they'll talk about how they thought it was something, and it is not what you think it is. It's horrible. It's, I'm telling you, that, that is some of the worst evil in the world. And every time we look at it, every time we click on it, you further it. There is no, this is just my problem. Pray that God would help you view people differently. They, they are made in the image of God. They're not a fantasy object. But you have to actually pray about it. You can't just talk about it. Secondly, meditate on scripture. Like last week, I'm going to give you two scriptures you can write down. And don't be afraid to write them down. You know, don't sit there and think, well, if somebody sees me right now, and they might think I have a problem. Well, we all know you have problems. Because we all have problems. Right? All of our problems are different. A lot of us share problems, but it's okay. We all have things we need to grow in. There's nothing wrong with it. But look at, look at Job chapter 31. Job, Job understood what was going on. And this is, this is a long time before Jesus. In fact, most consider Job to be the, the oldest um, book written and uh, you, you we're probably thinking like around Abraham's time when, when Job was going on. But he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Have you ever heard of the product Covenant Eyes? It's a, a software program that, that helps with accountability on the internet. Uh, this is where it comes from. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? How could I stare at a young lady that is not my wife? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? What would God do to me? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, see where Job is at? 
He's talked about gazing. He's talking about his heart. And this is long. Jesus is just clarifying. This is what he's been after all along. If I've lied in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. Talking about making bread. Let her make bread for somebody else, not me. Let others bow down on her. Let let her be somebody else's wife if I've been unfaithful. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an, an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as a badden, and it would burn to the root all my increase. I think Job understood what happened when you in, indulge. Read through that. Meditate on that. Another one, Psalm 101, verses 1 through 4. This would be a, a chunk to memorize right here, these four verses. This is David. David knew a thing or two about what could trip you up sexually. And he said, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. Now, keep Bathsheba in your mindset here. Remember, he's walking up on the rooftop. He's looking, he sees her, he acts on that. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Notice he doesn't say anything that is evil, anything that is sinful, anything that is lustful, anything that's worthless. If it's not good and it has no value for me, not going before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It will not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. You need to pray this. You know, you can pray this, not just reciting it to God, but, but pray it and say, God, will you help me walk with integrity of heart within my house? God, when nobody's here and I'm home alone, will you help me have integrity in my heart? God, when nobody sees what's on this internet screen, help me have integrity of heart. God, when nobody's looking and I pull out my phone, have me have integrity of heart. Lord, help me to not set anything worthless before my eyes. Lord, help me to hate the work of those who fall away. Help evil to not cling for me. Lord, please keep a perverse heart far from me. Turn this thing into a prayer. Memorize it. Meditate on it. If you really want to change your thinking, five to ten minutes a day for six to eight weeks. If you do this, meditate on this and pray it for ten minutes a day for six to eight weeks, it will change your thinking. Neuroscience shows it literally changes your brain structure. You form new neural pathways, and, and it changes the physical structure of your brain, and you'll think differently. You will. You can change your default response. Your first thought can change through, go figure what scripture says, meditate on the word of God. Science didn't, didn't come up with that. It just clarified, yeah, if you actually do what the scripture says long enough, it makes real changes to your physical body. It does. Third, other disciplines, particularly fasting. Because, you know, dealing with lust is dealing with a bodily urge, a bodily drive. And, and what is food but a bodily urge and a bodily drive? If you regularly fast, you know, say one day every week or something like that, you get in a habit of telling your body that you're in control, not it. 
fasting will help. It will strengthen your spirit. It will help you be stronger than your flesh. And fourth, um, well, one more, one other discipline, especially for all the married people, actually only for the married people, is have more sex with your spouse. Right? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Man, it was, like I said, it was God's idea. And do you know what scripture says about sex between husbands and wives in all of the discussion of it in scripture? Do you know what it says? Do you know what it forbids sexually between a husband and a wife? Anybody know? Abstaining. That's the only thing it forbids. Paul says, if you abstain for a short time for fasting and prayer, as soon as that window's over, come back together again so you don't give Satan an opportunity. I had a friend in Colorado. I won't say his name just in case he ever comes to visit. (laughs) But we were talking uh, about sex and he said, you know, we've just purposed that sex is our new hobby. I mean, you got to have a hobby. If you want to spend more time with your spouse, hey, let's just make sex our hobby. That's good for your marriage. It really is. I mean, seriously, in all of God's infinite wisdom, the only thing he tells husbands and wives is make sure you're actually having sex. You know, pretty much the number one thing couples fight about, top two are sex and money. And, and you know that. If, if we would develop a healthy sex life, we would be far less tempted to fulfill those desires in other ways because we're meeting each other's needs. And notice it's about meeting each other's needs, not just meeting your own. But if you're meeting his needs and he's meeting your needs, then your needs are met and your marriage is healthy and it's good. And we don't need to be afraid to talk about it, right? Scripture talks about it. Jesus talks about it. He thought of it. We should. And fourth, get somebody involved. You've got to have somebody in your business. And sometimes that means humbling ourselves and being willing to admit where there's a struggle. But it's okay because whoever you talk to is probably going to say, yeah, me too. Or yeah, I've been there. Or, or you know, it, it's no shocker. We're, we're all human. But we need to have one another there. James says, confess your sin to one another. We've got to be involved in each other's life. So let's purpose to avoid more than just adultery. Okay, we can't just say, well, let's get the check in the box and let's avoid more than just the lustful look. Let's develop the rightness of a kingdom heart in regards to sexuality and purity and in all of our relationships, especially within our marriages. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.